0: Welcome to Alternative Dog Moms podcast. I'm Kimberly Gautier, the creator of Keep the Tail Wagging. For the past nine years, I've been blogging about raw feeding, pet wellness, and life as a crazy dog mom. I've seen massive improvements in my dog's health since I started raising my dogs naturally, and I'm passionate about sharing my experience to help other pet parents.
1: I'm Erin Scott. For the past nine years, I've been researching and learning everything I can about healing cancer, allergies, autoimmune, and mystery illnesses in both my dogs and myself, and I can't wait to share with you everything I've learned on this journey. As the Alternative Dog Moms, we're bringing you all the latest dog health news that we're following and sharing the tips, tricks, and resources we learn along the way. Now, let's get started. Hello, Erin. How's it going? Good. Good, good, good. A little chaotic over here with the the new kid, but uh, we're figuring it out. (laughs) What's her name? Nessie. Nessie. She came with that name and she knows it and (laughs) she just looks like a Nessie. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we are joined today by a very special guest. We have Amy Renz. Hello. How are you? I'm great, Erin. Thank you very much for having me here. It's great to be with you and Kimberly. So... I'm sure we're gonna have a ton of questions for you. (laughs) So I always just love hearing kind of your origin story. Um, How did you get involved in the pet food industry? Did you always want to be in the pet food industry? You know, how did this all come about?
2: Sure, sure. So, um, so I, uh, my company's goodness gracious. We uh, make human grade, healthy, species appropriate, all that good stuff um, for dogs and and cats. And so, no, this was not my background at all. I um, I was running a small software company up until uh, two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten timeframe. So, pet food, total right turn, right. Um, but I, uh, I got my first. I grew up with dogs. My sister's a veterinarian, and my family has always been um, embracing companion animals. We had dogs and cats, and and um, yeah, I got my first dog in 2007. Her name was Grace, and and then about six months later, I got my second Lula. And I think, like most people, when they get their first dogs, uh, they become parents, right? For the first time. So when you're a kid growing up in a family with a pet, it's, it's very different than when you become that guardian and that caretaker, right? For you become mom. And so I became entrenched in it, committed to it, right? And wanted to do all of the really, all the right things, right? For my, uh, for my girls. And so 2007 was uh, also when the If uh, you've, I am older than you, of course. So I don't know if you remember 2007. Probably not. But uh, (laughs) I I I think we're older than you think we are. (laughs) (laughs) But but 2007 was the melamine issue, right? Where um, melamine was in all kinds of pet food. It made a whole bunch of. Uh, animals sick and uh, and died. And then shortly thereafter, there was a chicken jerky problem, right? With uh, chicken jerky, originally from China, but we also had the problem here in the States, which uh, gave a lot of uh, our companion animals kidney failure or kidney problems, and uh, which we never got to the bottom of. And then around that same time, there was a large pet food company that got into some hot water for exposing their employees to toxic mold and fumigants. And I became very distrustful of what to feed my girls and, and angry. And so I started making their food at home. And I did not know then what I know now. So I know I made a lot of mistakes along the way. But, um, but that was that was around 2009 or so, 2008, 2009. And I started realizing along that way, too, about how many companion animals were euthanizing in, in the U.S. Because people simply fail them, right? They are homeless and we don't find them good homes. We have problems with not spaying and neutering, not um, being... Uh, actively involved in their health and well being, And so at the time, it's better now, but at the time it was about three to 5 million companion animals every year. And, and I thought that was really atrocious. And so I turned 40 in 2009 and I started asking myself, you know, who are you helping? And I was building shareholder value at that software company. And I was helping people along in their career paths and all of that, but that really wasn't Uh, a lot of comfort when I put my head on a pillow at night. And so I thought that if I could create a company that does something really amazing for the health and well-being of our companion animals, the ones that have homes, and at the same time does something to give back to address this homelessness problem, that would be my answer. And so I created Goodness Gracious in late 2009. We operating in early uh, 2010. And um, I I describe it as as much a company as it is a spirit. Because to me, it's about doing something really healthy for our companion animals, but doing so in a way that um, connects us to each other and to our planet. And so it started out as a business that we were we're a treat company to start with, and um, and it started out that we were giving fifty one percent of our profits to community animal shelters and, and rescues, and we continue oh, wow. to do that today. We, but we do a lot more um, that embraces and strengthens that connection, so that extends to our selection of the ingredients that we use, and we're mindful about how we source our um, not only our proteins but also our produce, right? Um, in terms of no GMOs and things that are, are good for our planet. Um, we use a lot more green energy than you know, your average company. Um, we focus on uh, recyclable packaging and more compostable ways to ship things from here to there. And, and also, we embrace uh, a, a vibrant culture of diversity in, in, our, in our team and so so it extends to many different ways and um uh that uh, that we improve those connections but that's that's uh, that's where we are today and and in 2021 late 2021 we expanded from treats into food and so now we make a gently cooked uh uh five different lines for uh, for dogs and two for cats
1: so I'm actually feeding the rabbit to my guy, Nino, right now. Oh, nice. He's Yay. my older guy and he's had a gallbladder problem. So he's on a low fat diet. And so rabbit was like the leanest thing that we could find. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's what we've been feeding him for. I mean, off and on with uh, turkey and a couple other things. Uh, but right now, literally today, it's rabbit.
2: <laughs> oh, fantastic, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. So
1: what made you go with
0: gently cooked instead of raw?
2: Right. So, so for us, we're a human, we're licensed and inspected human food facility. So um, out of the gate, we have issues with handling and shipping out raw food, right? So I'm not a huge fan of HPP. Mm -hmm. And so for us, and we don't want to, um, we're not into ultra processing. So we're, we're not a kibble company and uh, kibble are canned and, um, and we're not, we won't, I, you can call me a control freak, I suppose, but uh, but I'm not into freeze drawing because that basically means we have to outsource. So mm-hmm. um, so for us, they, by process of elimination, we kind of got down to this being the best way for us as a company to, to make food. But also, there's a lot of really good benefits in, in lightly cooking or gentle cooking. And I think a lot of times there's this thinking that it's dead food and yeah. you know as opposed to raw and that's it, really not the case like we're not we can look at what a lot of the leading holistic veterinarians say about gentle cooking we can look at the science of it too and see that there's really a lot of preservation of nutrients in food that's lightly cooked mm-hmm. and um, and there's also, um, some benefits that we can get out of lightly cooking as opposed to raw. It feels like it's more accessible to a lot of people.
0: I mean, I he's gone now. Rodrigo passed away a couple months ago, but um, he, in his last couple years, preferred a gently cooked diet to a raw diet. And I found that veterinarians, especially for those of us who live more in a rural area, we're going to um, traditional veterinarians. And they're more amenable to a gently cooked diet than they are a raw diet. And for people who are new to fresh food, it's easier to get them on board with a gently cooked diet than a raw diet because it just it feels like it checks so many different boxes beyond just nutritionally
2: right i i would agree with that i i think that it is easier for some dogs to digest mm-hmm. right so so there's that it's um You know, humans eat cooked food and we don't suffer malnutrition or poor health because of light cooking methods, right? Westerners have obesity and metabolic and immune and inflammatory related diseases out the wazoo, right? But we have those issues because of overnutrition and the toxicity of ultra processed foods. So that's not what light cooking is. So light cooking would be like steam or sous vide or poaching or blanching. It's the application of short heat. Are of low heat for a short duration, and so you know there are many leading holistic veterinarians that recommend those kinds of diets for um, compromised dogs or for older dogs um, because it's j- it's just easier for for those for those dogs to process those kinds of uh, nutrients.
1: When it comes to like the FDA or AFCO, is there any Hurdle that you've encountered, like, is it easier to have lately cooked versus raw when dealing with those kind of organizations?
2: I, I agree a hundred. I would say yes. Um, I think that um, that the FDA, not not AFCO, because AFCO is really just a they write the regulations, but they don't enforce anything, right? But uh, FDA in my personal opinion, has really singled out raw pet food companies mm-hmm. and put them under a lot um, uh, more intense scrutiny for things like pathogenic bacteria than they do with ultra processed foods. I mean, ultra processed foods, I, I think Susan Thixton reported on this, that ultra processed foods came right out and told the FDA, you know, the, the big pet food companies, we can't make kibble without there being pathogenic bacteria problems. And ninety. Eight, I think percent of all of the recalls for pathogenic bacteria in the last several years have been kibble. Right? Mm-hmm. It's really not raw food, but yet those are the raw the, the raw food companies are the ones that the FDA tends to tends to come down on, and and also is very vocal um, about um, issues or concerns about uh, cross contamination with pathogenic bacteria. I think people. I think people are smart, right? Mm -hmm. And I think they go to a grocery store and they buy a pound of raw chicken and they know that they have to wash their hands and they have to wash their cutting board and they have to wash their knife and all of that kind of stuff. And I think when they buy raw food, they know that too. But the FDA, for whatever reason, uh, does not give them credit for that or maybe they have other uh, motives. Well, I honestly think that
0: people like to take I and mean, I see this across just the world in general, where people like to take this small minority of people who are doing it wrong and attribute that to everyone. So um, years and years ago, when, when I used to do events like, you know, the Pet Expo and stuff, and as my way of telling people about Raw. And gosh, those were miserable days, full on days of, you know, <laughs> trying not to argue with people you know, and just, you know, being polite. And it was just miserable. Um, but I remember once I, a friend did it with me and we're sitting in our booth and I re- returned, I was speaking at the event and I come back and she was like, we were behind, um, what is it? Bainfield vet. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and they were just having a field day about how horrible raw feeders are and how disgusting we were and all these type of things. And she was just, she's just, she's, I get back to my booth and I could tell she's agitated and she does not have a filter at all. So she was just like, I'm just going to sit here and not say anything. And so I was just like, I'll go and talk to them. So I went around and was just like introduced myself and was just like, I understand you guys were talking about raw feeders. And as a raw feeder, I would love to join this discussion. Two of the veterinarians just immediately walked away, but one decided to have that conversation with me, and the amount of misinformation he had was astounding and it really gave me pause about we're it's like we're on two different sides of a huge chasm um as far as what they think we do and what they think we should be doing versus what we do and um it's that's that chasm or on that side of the chasm is what they're making their rules based on. So it's just sort of like you have a, a handful of people who are like, you know, dogs need bacteria. It's good for them. You don't have to worry about this. And so they just assume that everyone's like, oh yeah, bacteria is all over our house. We just, we don't clean anything. We're, you know, and, and so they're just like, yeah, you own those raw feeders. They're pretty disgusting. So that's <laughs> <laughs> when it's just sort of like, yeah, you guys can manage to make a turkey dinner for Thanksgiving without killing the whole family. Right. But for some yeah. reason, the second we decide to start feeding our dogs, all of that knowledge has gone out the window, and we're just disgusting.
1: With your sister being a veterinarian, was she someone who was into this kind of more integrative whole
2: foods movement, or did she think you were crazy? Yeah, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, I have to say, uh, at the start, she thought I was woo-woo. <laughs> <laughs> she, um, you know, she her her perspective has broadened um, now, and uh, she, she feeds her dogs the foods that, that we make. Um, but in the early days when she saw me making food at home for, for my dogs and she thought I was, uh, it just wasn't for her, right? She was, she was feeding her dogs pretty much out of a bag, right? Out of a, you know, a dry food. And when we started talking about, uh, what I had mentioned earlier with kibble being responsible for most pathogenic bacteria recall, she was shocked to learn that kind of stuff and, in the defense of conventional veterinary medicine, they—I think what a lot of doctors are exposed to is the mantra of big kibble companies, right? Because these are the ones that are whining and dining them, like their pharmaceutical companies, taking them out to dinners, and and um, and so what they hear is that oh, you know, byproducts—that's really just liver. Like no, no,
0: it (laughs) is. Oh my gosh, that's so true. I um, not to interrupt, but I am going to interrupt. I'm a blogger, and so there's a huge pet blogging community. And when I started writing about raw feeding, that was it was just basically Kimberly has gone left field, and she's drank the Kool Aid. She's drank the Dogs Naturally magazine Kool Aid, and she's just gone crazy. But someone actually wrote an article about by, um, byproducts, which were just, you know, raw feeders don't like byproducts, but they sit, they feed their dogs byproducts all the time. It's like, that's not true. We don't go and sweep up the floor right. of the kibble company and then throw <laughs> that into our dog's food and call it raw feeding. Right.
2: I know it's, it's crazy. So I, um, there's a huge study done by pet food industry Trade associations in 2020, and they looked at, I think it was like 1,235 dog foods and 500 something cat foods and, and the ingredients by tonnage that went into them. And, you know, so this is industry reporting on itself. And what they said was that 90% of what goes into pet food is corn, soy, or rendered byproduct. Like that's them. Right. And so, you know, it, that stuff is not what's going into raw food. That's the stuff that's going into that ultra processed stuff. Um, so, yeah. yeah,
1: I heard your uh, conversation. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes with Angela Ardolino on her podcast. Uh, we don't need to get into it. Um, <laughs> um, but it was a graphic description of what rendered me. Rendering is right. <laughs> and I had a hard time getting through it, I'll be honest.
2: <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awful. It's pretty awful. um. So
0: I look at your ingredients and, you know, one thing that I've noticed with a lot of um, cooked food brands is the use of white potatoes and you do not use white potatoes Mm -hmm. yet. um, Your food, it looks like what anyone at home would make. I mean, it it looks like, it looks like food. Yeah. It looks like food, like crock pot food. Why, why, why is it that so many people use white potatoes and why did you choose not to?
2: Oh, I think white potatoes, uh, there's a lot of problems with white potatoes. I'm there. Uh, really turned into sugar really <laughs> easily. The, so they're high glycemic, right? Um, so they fuel inflammation. Um, they are loaded with glyphosate. So they're one of the more heavily treated crops in terms of chemicals. Um I think they're used a lot because they're inexpensive. Um, and when you're trying to hit a certain, from a manufacturing perspective, when you're trying to hit a certain price point that people will buy something at, you have to find cheaper ingredients to use. And so it's basically a, a filler, but you know, it's not something that I like, or, you know, I purposely set out to avoid, right. I purposely mm. set out to avoid white, anything white, white potatoes, um, any kind of grains we our foods are have a glycemic load of 1 and so we use a little bit of carrot in terms of a root vegetable that's no more than 5%. And we use a little bit of sweet potato in a couple of our recipes at no more than 3% by weight of the recipe. So all of our foods have a glycemic load of one. And, and that's really important to us because, you know, all of that high starch stuff is, is at the root of obesity and um, metabolic dysfunction, right? Where you start to have high blood sugar and, and that is at uh, this vicious cycle of, of metabolic syndrome, right? That's It's obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which puts a body at risk for a whole bunch of other problems, not the least of which is cancer. And mm-hmm. so it was super important to us to to avoid any kind of starchy food, and potatoes are right there Yeah, in that bucket.
1: So when you're talking about going from a treat company to a food company and you're scaling and, you know, you're trying to source quality ingredients and also, you know, remain at an affordable price point. Like how long did it take you to kind of put that all together, you know, to be able to to do that? Right. So,
2: so the, uh, so when we, I've been wanting to do food for a long time. Uh, We came out with it, like I said, in late 2021, uh, but it had been on my radar for several years and I don't think, for us anyway, the market maybe hadn't matured enough. Because uh, if you look, gently cooked foods have really only taken off in the last few years, right? Um, I think it was really Farmer's Dog with their Super Bowl ad yeah. two years ago, right? <laughs> We've talked about that really that, yeah. <laughs> put it in in mainstream. So, but it's it's always a work in work in progress, right? Because the one thing about food prices is that they never stay the same, right? They're always rising we had we we're along with covid there was a huge uh, bird flu epidemic right which caused chicken and turkey prices duck prices to any kind of bird uh, poultry prices to quadruple and so and, and for there to actually seriously be a chicken shortage like you wouldn't think that there would be a chicken shortage but but there was and so it's always a it's it's always a constant battle right and it and it's tough when you're a manufacturer because most of the time you have to take that hit to the margin when it happens because you're locked into pricing right we don't our pricing for our food pretty much stays the same whether or not it's on a the, a shelf in a pet supply store or it's on our website right but we are tied tightly to commodity price. So like the price of chicken or the price of spinach or whatever that is, when it goes up, our margin goes down because we really just can't increase our margin to, uh, to the, at the same pace. So we just, we, we pray for, for, uh, for good suppliers and good sourcing and are try to do our best um, with, uh, with that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, when you make food you can't just swap out ingredients right you're making a complete and balanced food and you got to stick with the program right because you're committing to a um a nutritional profile right that's that looks like this and not just from a macronutrient standpoint but from a vitamin a mineral a a fatty acid an amino acid standpoint and i find it fascinating And, and maybe we're a lot different maybe we're a maybe were a rarity in that respect because i was listening to i'm a member of the inside scoop right yeah. Rodney habib and and uh and dr becker and they're doing this uh four part series on review of pet food right so they just did they just covered i think 14 kibble brands and part of their review they seek out the AFCO nutritional profile from each one of the manufacturers that they review. And most of those manufacturers, I was shocked, would not release that information. Right. And so maybe they're swapping out ingredients and swapping around their recipe and, and all of that. Um, but, um, but I think that's a long answer to your questionnaire. Uh, you know, we, we work with nutritionists, we work with veterinarians, we, um, And we come up with a formulation that is something that we personally want to feed our companion animals, like period, the end. And if it's not something that I'm going to feed my dog, I'm not going to make it. And so um, and then we just try to make it as affordable as we can for folks, you know, and and that probably means that we're not getting the kind of margins that that a big kibble company is getting. Right. But but we're doing the right thing. That's what I think.
0: How many of the ingredients do you make yourself? Like, do you guys actually grow your own sprouts?
2: No, we don't. We so we use uh, the only sprouts we use are a um, an organic sprouted uh, sunflower seed, and so we buy those um, from a, from a company. So we don't we don't grow any of our own uh, ingredients. Uh, we we source them from from good suppliers. So, um.
0: and speaking of which, um, let's talk about vegetables because one of the things that just really struck me when you spoke at the Feed Real Summit was everything that you had to say about vegetables and glyphosate. And before listening to you, um, you know, I I tried to do organic, but it just wasn't really a priority to me. But after listening to you. I became an organic, you know, just junkie. <laughs> and and I also, you know, I am terrified of feeding spinach because the more I look into just how vegetables are grown, I couldn't find any spinach unless I grew it myself or a friend is growing it in their garden, organic or not, that wasn't being subjected to <laughs> chemicals. Yeah. And so can you speak on that?
2: Sure. So So glyphosate was approved for use in 1974, right, as a, um, an herbicide. And its use has accelerated in our country with not only the advent of GMOs, but the way that we use it, right? We use it uh, on a, as a desiccant and to ripen crops just before harvest. So about a third of U.S. cropland is treated with glyphosate, some 300 million acres. And it, it's especially scary for... Pet parents, because eighty five percent of the glyphosate that's used in our country is applied to the plants that make up about ninety six percent of the, those plant based ingredients that go into pet food. So you know we're talking about potatoes, corn, soy, um, rice, dried beans, and peas, um, peanuts, like in peanut butter kind of stuff, and so it it <laughs> goes on about twelve or thirteen different.
0: Peanuts. That was it. It was the peanuts. I love peanuts, love them yeah. so much in the shell. And I will just sit and crack shells and eat peanuts all day long.
2: Don't I oh, God, don't go
0: near them now. And so when I came home, I drove from store to store looking for organic peanuts and could not find right. them anywhere. And so now I'm doing organic cashews.
2: Oh, good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so, but glyphosate is... Um, You know, it's, it's recognized as being cytotoxic. So toxic to our cells, mutagenic, carcinogenic, uh, genotoxic. It, it was, and it is a large correlational study was done in 2014 and it mapped glyphosate and GMO crop data to over 20 different chronic diseases, six different types of cancer, diabetes, obesity, and it found an extremely high correlation between those things and and uh, and those diseases and then, in I would say it was late. I would say it was twenty twenty one. Uh, 13 researchers out of Europe discovered that glyphosate that's administered within Europe's acceptable daily intake for humans, which is about one-sixth of what it is here in the United States, disrupts the balance of gut bacteria through the same pathway. It destroys weeds. So it, it's the pesticide of our, of the microbiome. And when you start farting around with your microbiome right, and creating a leaky gut, you're now exposing yourself to all kinds of, of diseases. I mean, the gut is really the center of our health. It's tied to our brain. It's tied to our immune system. It's tied to our metabolic health. And so appropriate choices when it comes, it doesn't all have to be organic, right? Um, You can go a long, long way by eliminating or choosing organic on just maybe the 12 or 13 crops that are those big, those those ones that receive the majority of glyphosate. Um, And And if that's where your budget, like if if you don't have this endless budget, that's where you start, right, to make some really wise choices. So, yeah, there's this uh, list that I've uh, put up, I think, on like Instagram and our blog that has the the list of of those uh, 12 or 13. The Dirty Dozen. Yeah, yeah. It's not actually the dirty dozen. It's a little bit different than the dirty oh, dozen okay. because it's focused on glyphosate. But it's there's a lot of similarities, okay, um, to it. And and when you add things like cotton and almonds into the mix, you pretty much account for all of the glyphosate that we use in in the country. So um, so we we tend to or we like to look for fruits and vegetables that are not those glyphosate crops. Right. And, um, and then we also like to look for ones that do a lot of different and really good things for the body. So not only help with metabolic health, because there's this epidemic of disease that begins with obesity, right? About, uh, 60% Sixty percent of our dogs and our cats are, are obese, and that just triggers this cascade of problems. So, when we can start to address that kind of those kinds of issues, then we can go a long way. So, we like to look for for vegetables like dark leafy greens, uh, broccoli. Um, I like spinach because it 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 has a lot of vitamins and minerals in it that are really good um, for us. But um, but kale, Swiss chard. Some blue and red fruits, right? Those are all really good things that support really good cellular signaling in the body, decreases in inflammation, um, helps us fight cancer, all all that kind of stuff. And 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 really surprisingly, and back to your, your original question earlier about cooking, those things stand up really well to uh, to cooking as long as you're not burning the crap out of it, right, or mm. boiling it forever. Amino acids and minerals are largely unchanged in in a light cooking process. About the only mineral that you might see some degradation or loss in is, is chlorine. And that just is because it tends to dissipate in water. So um, over time, chlorine will kind of go away. Um, When you cook, you might lose maybe 10% of that. Um, But vitamins will average around 25% loss in gentle cooking. And the most sensitive ones are B1, so thiamine, B12, B6, you might lose 40 to 50% there. So if you're cooking, you want to make sure that you're Mm -hmm. introducing other foods that or more foods that make up for that. Um, vitamin D, B2, B3, B5 are probably about 10 to 20% loss. And vitamin E and choline are probably around 30%. Fats, though, um, you know, if you're talking about a really lightly cooking method, you're probably not going to have any destruction there, but you might see anywhere from zero to, to 20% loss with those. And, and those would be like your really fragile omega threes that, uh, that you could see. But, but so when we make our food, one of the things that makes us different is that we don't combine everything and then cook it. We steam things we steam each ingredient separately, and that it allows us not to cook certain things. So we don't cook our fats, right? We add them at the end when everything's cold and um, and we don't cook our fruits, and we don't cook those um, sprouted sunflower seeds because those those things are a really great source of vitamin e for us and and you know we want to preserve that. So about the only things that that we, do cook our, 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 we steam our vegetables so they can become more digestible because our dogs really can't, they don't masticate like we do, right? They don't chew stuff. So, and they don't have that enzyme in their saliva that would um, enable them to, to digest things like carbohydrates and stuff. So um, so we like to steam that. And we also do uh, lightly steam some of our our um, protein so that we can at least go through that uh, that kill step that pathogen uh, step so we heat them to a, an internal temperature that would be sufficient for killing uh, the that kind of bacteria and then we we stop it and rapidly chill it so through that kind of process where we don't see a lot of destruction in um in in our nutrients
0: what about the oxalates in spinach that's like that was always been my concern is you know i get messages from people all the time who say you know they're worried about the oxalates is that something that We shouldn't be concerned about, or is it more for dogs that are more prone to stones?
2: I think it's I I think it's dogs that are prone to it, and that like people is is a very small percentage of uh, of the general population. And also, when you make sure that the diet is is uh, is a fresh food diet, they're getting adequate or a lot of they're getting a lot of water, right? So in their food, so they're not a dry fed. Dry food-fed dogs, so okay. get access to water in the food and in the bowl is going to help prevent the, any problems with oxalates. And also, when you cook uh, a, a like spinach, you're you're losing about or you're eliminating about half, fifty percent of the oxalates that are there. So, um, so okay, it's it's generally only a problem in a small percentage okay. of dogs. Interesting.
1: So you had mentioned, like for instance, that you use the sprouted sunflower seeds as a source of vitamin E, so I think I've heard you say that all of your like vitamin things like that are based on whole foods and that you don't use synthetics. Right. Can you talk about the use of synthetics in other foods and why you don't do that?
2: Yeah, for sure. I, I love talking about this kind of stuff, right? Um, so our our food is is 100% whole food, right? It's complete and balanced to AFCO's profile using 100% whole foods. And so we bodies don't recognize synthetics and they're, they don't behave the same way uh, as the nutrients in whole food. So, a great example from this, and one that's gotten a, a lot of attention recently, is copper associated hepatopathy, right? So, Dr. Sharon Center is a veterinarian out of Cornell, and she called copper associated hepatopathy an avoidable and tragic nutritionally provoked canine illness that stems from AFCO's 1997 change to highly bioavailable copper chelates that, at levels that exceed the physiologic tolerance for many healthy dogs. And so a copper chelate is essentially copper that's bound to an amino acid to make it more bioavailable. So natural copper, which would be found like in oysters and uh, beef liver, right, has a bioavailability of about 30 to 40%. Chelated copper, on the other hand, has a bioavailability of about 80 to 90%. And not only that, but unlike natural copper, which mammals are really good with regulating, so it seems like the more they ingest, the less they absorb, they eliminate excess in the stool... Copper chelates are not that way. They bioaccumulate in the liver. So even in healthy dogs, even in dogs that are not genetically predisposed to have copper storage disease, we're seeing increases in copper associated hepatopathy because of the use of copper chelates in in pet food. So you know that that's one particular problem. Um, another one, oh God, phosphorus is used widely in. In all in, in pet food. Its highest levels are in all life stages and puppy formulas. And synthetic forms of phosphorus are associated with kidney disease and long-term use. So uh, natural forms of phosphorus have a bioavailability of about 40 to 60% uh, synthetic forms. It's found largely in in meat, right? So, um, But synthetic forms have a bioavailability of 80 to over 100%. And these are things like phosphates, right? So they're the kinds of things that you would find in uh, cured meats and processed foods and soda, right? And that's what AFCO allows to be the phosphorus source in pet food. And so synthetic phosphorus does a number of different things. It rapidly increases, unlike natural phosphorus, synthetic phosphorus rapidly increases phosphorus levels in, in circulation in the bloodstream. And that can cause calcification of soft tissues like in your blood vessels and in uh, in your kidneys. And so when you start to damage your blood vessels, right, those endothelial cells, those tiny little cells that line your blood vessels, you're causing a, a lot of uh, damage that has can cause metabolic dysfunction, right, um, high blood pressure. um cholesterol problems, you can have immune mediated problems because of damage to your blood vessels. Those little endothelial cells are responsible for exchanges between your tissues and your bloodstream. And so they're super important. Phosphorus, synthetic phosphorus can also um, increase um, parathyroid hormone After ingestion, and that's important because parathyroid hormone activates vitamin D in your kidneys, and that puts calcium into circulation. And so, when you have hypercalcemia, then you can start to see problems with cholesterol regulation and uh, insulin proper regulation of insulin, uh, sodium retention, high blood pressure. So, you know these things. It's not just a simple replacement of a synthetic for for a whole food. Um, it's, you know, I I sat across the table from, he didn't know who I was. Uh, He was a big muckety muck with uh, Purina and he was meeting with a whole bunch of veterinarians and, and tried to tell them the same line I've heard from a lot of people in big pet food. And, and it's that the ingredients don't matter. It's the nutrients that do. Right. And, and that's not true. Right. I mean, synthetic phosphorus is not the same thing as natural phosphorus. Ingredients make a difference. Um, you know, there's there's probably about five or six synthetics that are on my, uh, you know, <laughs> do not really seriously do not like list. Right, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> copper would be one of them. Um, phosphorus is another. I I don't like synthetic choline. It's uh, and vitamin D that we have huge issues with vitamin D. So vitamin D, most dogs are actually deficient in vitamin D, according to a a. A big test that was done by Tufts. They looked at about 300, 300 plus dogs that ate. It was like forty different foods, including homemade, and they found that all diets provided insufficient levels of vitamin D for dogs. And you know, the vitamin D is important for so many different reasons. It's tied to metabolic health. It's tied to immune health. It is a risk factor for cancer. So, what are the really scary things about vitamin D and it's something it's in synthetic forms of it is it's something that pet parents would never know to ask and could never get any assur- assurances on, right? And it's that the chemical structure of that vitamin D really matters. Like if if that vitamin D is a micro-encapsulated form versus a water-soluble, mycelized form versus an oil-based form or Crazy ethanol-based form, right? That can affect utilization in the body by as much as two to five times. So, you know, when that label says synthetic vitamin D, well, what form is it actually in, right? And is my dog getting enough of it? Um, fortunately, there are some tests out there that pet parents can now run. So, VDI Labs does a does a test that. Uh, With a blood draw that you can check check your dog's vitamin D levels, Uh, and so that that would be something that I would ask my veterinarian to do at my next visit, um, because vitamin D is super important.
1: When you take care of your own dogs, do you do these different testings?
2: I do, yeah, I do. It's it's uh, you know it's uh, I've done glyphosate testing on them um, because I you know I, I I I my mantra I guess is well who is it president Reagan, right. said trust, but verify. Right. <laughs> so, um, right. So I, I, I want to know what their glyphosate levels are. And, um, and I was super pleased with, with what I see. I mean, I think dogs are always going to have with outdoor exposures, right. Unless you've got some little guy that really just stays home all the time. Um, dogs that go out and play in parks, uh, and, sniff grass and drink out of puddles and all that kind of stuff are probably always going to have higher glyphosate levels than we do. But um, Dr. Erin Bannock is one of three practicing integrative veterinary oncologists in, in the country. And she has as a goal for her patients to get them uh, down to two part per billion or below for glyphosate. And she's able to achieve that through organic produce. and And I think she uses mostly a, a raw food diet, uh I my dog's uh test at right around 1 part per billion which you know which I I think is really good. The average dog is somewhere around 16 part per billion. It's just wow. it's really crazy. So when and the average human I think is somewhere around 0.5 part per billion. So it's, there's a there's a real big.
0: When it comes to organic vegetables, how do we know like when we're at a grocery store how do we know that it's truly organic?
2: Oh, that's a good question, Lord, I don't know if I, have, I don't it in that section. I don't know if I have <laughs> the answer for you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could uh, send it away to a lab, right? <laughs> i, <guess if laughs> I reached a point I'm where I'm so I mad by the time you get your answer. And
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm today I, I have the day off. And so today I'll be driving down to the um the fancy grocery store, which is a few cities <laughs> south of us just to get my vegetables. Because I know, I trust that their stuff is organic. But it's like my just regular local grocery store. Sometimes I look at it and it's just sort of like,
2: are you really organic? Right, right. I suppose. And and I also think sometimes you can tell by the size and the coloring of things, right? I mean, sometimes organic produce is just smaller, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just... You know, those massive honk honking apples, right? They're the ones that got the chemicals. <laughs> I really want the small ones, please, you know?
0: Yeah, I've started every summer I grow um, a garden, just a container garden filled with vegetables. And I just spend all summer harvesting and grinding vegetables to freeze just so that I can have, I know my vegetables are organic. But um, even then, I mean, it's like it goes back to the seed and it's just sort of like, good Lord, you know, are these seeds organic? I mean, all of it is so overwhelming with all the steps that we have to go through to find non GMO, organic, um, minimally tampered with uh, foods just to be able to feed ourselves and our dogs because we don't want to eat a chunk of chemicals.
2: I know, I agree. I, I do think there are some things too that we can add to our diet that can help with that, right? I mean, we're, we're going to ex- be exposed to, to toxins just because it's in our food supply and it's in the air we breathe. But I started using a, um, I guess I'm going to give a shout out to, uh, to a company, but I um, <laughs> I started using IONS, they're terahydrates So it's that pump, it's just, it looks like water, kind of looks like brownish tinted water, right? But it's um, it's got Fulvate or humic acid extract in it that is supposed to help, um, repair gut lining and protect gut lining. So I've started using that in, with my, in my health and, and with my dogs. We, we each get squirts of it every morning. And, uh, um, so is that, um, we, we recently started using, a uh, goodness gracious, chlorella in one of our recipes, right? Because it's one mm-hmm. of those really green superfoods that helps bind heavy metals and eliminate heavy metals from, from your body. So yeah, I mean, in the absence of being able to verify that what we're eating is truly organic, I guess we add other things into our diet to hedge our bets, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have I
0: am become a huge fan of Gussie's gut. I just turned practically a, a quarter of my... Online content is like, look at there. I have a video that I'll be putting up today of Bella eating it off a spoon. I mean, I just, I, I love that product so very much. And it's just sort of like, um, but yeah, it, it's one of those where you can, with everything out there that we're learning, it's so easy to go overboard with just basically trying to, you know, metaphorically put our dogs into this healthy bubble to protect them from everything that's out there. But, you know, we can only do so much. And I'm very lucky because I do, I live on land and I live in a rural area. So their exposure to toxins is minimal as compared to other, uh, other dogs, but it's not in, it's not so minimal that I can just be like, go be free. You're fine. (laughs) Because it's just, we live in a toxic world. It's just the way it is.
2: One of the really big struggles around here in New England is with ticks, right? I mean, in, in most of the rest of the country, it, it's not nearly as bad as it is here. But it, but if you want to give your dogs off-leash access to soil and mental enrichment and off-leash exercise, right? That generally means that you're going to be in an area where there's ticks. And and around here, Lyme disease and all of those co-infections are Seriously bad, seriously bad, yeah. and and I ha, I struggle with that question about those tick preventatives, right? Mm-hmm. And those we know, we know they are awful, right? Awful, terrible, awful, right? Mm-hmm. But so is Lyme disease, right? And I don't think that a lot of people in the rest of the country get how serious the problem is here in New England with that. And I have a lot of compassion that goes out to people on on both sides of that. I mean, that can be a very divisive argument for people, or people can get very passionate about Mm -hmm. it, right, about to use them or to not. And I think we we all can embrace how awful they are and, and agree how awful they are. But, you know, for some people, who have had personal experiences even with dealing with, I mean, I've had that personal experiences with dealing with Lyme disease and co-infections and all of that. And it's, it can be the, the alternative can be just as bad. And it's
1: like heartworm in the South. Um, Like I would never, you know, judge anybody in this, you know, in Louisiana or something for using heartworm preventives, you know?
0: I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because I know I have a friend in Florida where fleas are superhuman down there. And they practically don't even respond to, well, they definitely don't respond to anything natural and they have to stay on top of it. They have to do the chemical treatments. And especially if you have a dog that is allergic to flea saliva, you know, this is something that, you know, your dog is either going to be extremely miserable or safe. And so it, it turns into more of a detoxing and protecting the system, protecting the microbiome, while using these products, I, it's definitely something that I've learned not to judge what other people are doing. I don't mind sharing what I'm doing, but I kind of feel I am in such a, you know, knock on wood, glorious place because even here in Washington, I mean, my friend, um, she is a vet tech and she was like, this was a horrible year for fleas here. And they were starting to see dogs with ticks, something that we really don't experience here. And she was like, oh, yeah, it's been horrible. Not me. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> we live on a property that's practically all exposed to sunshine. And my dogs, I, I barely do anything for, you know, the only thing I really do for fleas is, you know, feed a fresh food diet and throw some garlic in their food, you know, during the spring, summer and fall. And I have never experienced fleas or, or I shouldn't say never, but you know, it's just not an issue. Oh, and I do the spray, like the Ken and Kine and, and those type of sprays and, and stuff, but it's really not an issue for me, but I feel guilty because I don't want to lead anyone to think that, oh, so you don't need to do anything in Washington. And it's like, no, you just don't need to do anything at my house right. <laughs> <laughs> down the road, my friend. Was battling fleas all summer long, but at my house we were gravy. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, how did you learn all of this? It sounds like you worked in the software industry. So, you know, is it just from your own research, or have you done like formal education? Like, how how, how and how can we all learn this? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, Aaron. Uh, yeah, just being an active learner, right? Just reading. I I, I think you know, when I look at how I spend my weekends, it's, it I, I just love to read. Like I love to learn. And so yeah, when probably most people are out, I don't know, whatever, going to a movie, right. Or I do like to exercise. So I do, I do get out there, but, um, but I, I love, I love to read. And so when I, when I was preparing for instance, for the feed reel, uh, a summit, I thought, Oh, you know, I know exactly what I'm going to talk about. And, and I had connected with Ruby months ahead of time, and knew we were going to be doing this. And, and, and as I got into it, I thought, Oh, no, I want to learn more about this. And I want to talk about more about that. So I just, uh, yeah, I just, I just, I just read. And, (laughs) but I I like to read some kind of pretty heady stuff, you know, like I I love to read scientific studies and and all of that. And not, not necessarily the stuff that um, kind of early initiates uh, to pet parents, you know, pet parents might, um, might pick up, right. Um, And there's a lot of good material that out there too. But, um, but no, I, I kind of the nerdier, the article, the, <laughs> the more into it. I. <laughs> I <you know. laughs> and I had a really great time at the AHVMA too. We were there, um, this past October. So it was right before the feed real summit and we had a booth, so we were presenting there, but we had a couple of people that stayed in our booth and I just ended up going to a whole bunch of the lectures and, uh, that, that, um, that the veterinarians were giving it. So that was, that was like Christmas for me. And <laughs> a <whole bunch> of- <laughs> Can you attend the, the, the AVMA one? Uh, we well, won't be at the AVMA. No, we're going to do the AHVMA again. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. Do you do any like conventional
2: vet? Yeah. I'm out? always curious about their response. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't really done that. <laughs> I, I kind of like to uh, to connect with the people who already drink the same kind of Kool-Aid. <laughs> I want to answer the
0: questions of why isn't there any cornstarch or rice in your
2: food? Yeah. Right?
0: <laughs> Where's the protein going to come from if there's no cornstarch or rice?
2: <laughs> yeah, aren't you worried about uh, DCM because you don't have any grain in your food? <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> oh god! <Yeah. laughs> oh, I just have to tell you, we were talking about ticks, and that's a big problem where I am also. And I live very close to a place where there's kind of like this very cool hiking trail through the woods. But we don't always like to go in there because every time we go in there, somebody comes out with a tick on them. And and Kimberly has heard me tell stories of how my husband is like obsessed, like he like thinks he spots ticks everywhere. And like, we'll be down on his hands and knees looking at my dogs behind to make sure that, <laughs> you know, she doesn't have a tick in the parking lot of a school, you know. And so we just adopted this new girl, Nessie. And we've already had Tim's already had a tick scare with her. <laughs> that was a false alarm. <laughs> it was just that she kind of has this little dimple here on her cheek and it has, you know, I don't know. It's like, it looks kind of dark in the center. And so he was already like freaking out and had the flashlight and the tick removal kit. And, and then he's like, <laughs> oh, he's oh no, like where am I I know this poor dog is like, what's going on here. We take it very gosh. seriously.
2: <laughs> yep. Yep. We do. But, uh, so when, uh, funny story. So when I first, uh, when we first got Grace, so our very first dog, so I'm married and, um, we were up at a family cabin it was like a, it was a big family gathering up there. And so this cabin has, uh, really two bedrooms and then a ginormous loft, which has multiple beds in it. So we were kind of a communal sleeping area. Right. So, so, uh, my husband and I were relegated to one of those uh beds of the this you know loft and we had grace between us and so she's just a puppy and it's the middle of the night and and new hampshire woods are surrounding us and and i'm petting her and i'm like tim tim i I think i feel a tick i feel a tick and he's like oh where you know and it's it's pitch dark because we don't want to turn the lights on right and he's feeling i'm like oh my god that's a tick that's a tick i'm like no 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 i think it's a nipple (laughs) I <laughs> me <laughs> and maybe one of the people next to us, like in the next minute am like, "We hear you." It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, all righty, well,
1: <laughs> oh my god, this is hilarious.
2: And on that note,
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, well, thank you so much for your time today. This was so much fun. It like,
2: it thank you.